0: Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody.
1: I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a cool new feature we just added to the ProducersPerspectivePro.com. It's called Office Hours. Once a month, pros get on the phone with me and we hash out everything that's going on with their project and figure out how to get it to the next level. Visit the ProducersPerspectivePro.com and join us for our new feature, Office Hours.
0: I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport, and today we're talking with someone... Okay, let's face it, I don't think he'll be insulted when I say you probably never heard of him before. But he arguably knows more about the economics of Broadway and London theater and touring than anyone else on this planet. Please welcome one of the few, the proud Broadway accountants, Mr. Robert Free. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Ken. Thanks very much. So Robert has been crunching the numbers of Broadway for over 30 years now. Literally hundreds of shows, including School of Rock, Hamilton. He's a trustee of TDF. He's lobbied Congress for tax law changes for our industry. teaches at Columbia. I mean, this guy knows the numbers. I also like to say Robert is the one guy that knows how much every single person in this industry makes. Never to be told, though, Ken. Well, that was going to be my first question. How much does Lin-Manuel Miranda make every week? Can you tell us that? I can tell you that he makes an awful lot more than anybody listening to the podcast, you or I, or maybe all of us combined. That's what we all seek to achieve, right? It's, it's those kind of big hits in this business. Something to strive for, and I've seen a number of them. It's not the first, it won't be the last. Well, actually, that that leads me to my first question. Is this an industry of like big monster hits like that? Is that the only thing that can survive these days? Well, the industry is is certainly changing a little bit. I think everyone's in search of that big hit, and you know that really is what drives a lot of the musicals. So people are thinking, should I be producing a musical or a play? Well, unless I have a play with a star in it, I'm not going to be as likely to do that as I would a musical, where the potential exists, of course, for a greater financial return, a much greater financial return. But I think the industry has been changing from that perspective. And, and plays have just gotten so expensive to produce at this point. And this past season was just such a shame with great shows that really struggled financially to find an audience. Okay, let's go back, because as I said in my intro, you're one of the few accountants. There are only less than a handful of you guys and gals on Broadway. How did you fall into this niche? I was still in school figuring out what I wanted to do when my professor said to me, hey, I know this great accounting firm, how'd you like to work for them? And I took an interview And the firm, did a lot of work in the arts and culture, had a small theater practice, and that was in 1984, and I sort of ran with that from 92 on. And it's been great, and I've uh, been really lucky to work with all the people in theater that I get to work with, and get to know, and get to share. So when you were in school, you weren't in theater accounting school. You were just in accounting school. There's no such college of theatrical accounting out there. No, there isn't such college. I was actually a chemistry major who wanted to be a musician, which is probably what attracted me originally to really enjoying working in the theater, because getting to work with creative people was a great part. But I just had a regular accounting degree and really was lucky to be in the right place at the right time. So my clients are not the big real estate moguls of the world who may be investing in some of the theater world, but they're, they're people who really work hard at the industry and have a passion for it and care for it, and that's what I respect. On a side note, I sometimes wonder what bit of information that you have is more valuable. How much everyone makes or the names and contact information of every Broadway investor on the planet, <laughs> I can tell you that we sent out uh, 11,000 form K-1s last year, which uh, the K-1 form lists the investor name, address, ID number, and lots of pertinent information. So um, that's, that's protected very carefully in our office. Well, for those of you out there looking to raise money, it's actually just comforting to me that there are 11,000 people in the world investing in Broadway shows. And that's just my share. There's others out there as well. So you were studying just, you had a basic accounting degree. So this is something else that I'm I'm fascinated by, because I think a lot of people out there think, well, Broadway is so different and so unique than any other business out there. But the general business structure, like you can apply a general accounting degree to this, right? Is there much difference? No, absolutely not. It's really quite simple, as a matter of fact, as a business, it's not very complicated. I think the thing is really to focus on is reading contracts understanding what they say and how to interpret them, being able to look at royalty arrangements and royalty pools and profit participations and just sort of understanding the overall picture and from an accounting perspective then just putting it down onto a piece of paper and translating it into sort of a picture that you can read by looking at a balance sheet or profit and loss statement or, or doing a tax return or a tax structure to make it work out. The other thing that I remember Noticing for the first time when I got pitched a deal for a movie or, or some other alternative type investment that payout of profit was similar to ours. I thought we had this such a unique thing, but these deals are similar, right? They are certainly in the film and the theater world they're similar. They're different of course from the real estate world or from a hedge fund type investment where the promoter or in our case let's call the producer gets less of a share of profits than we do in theater. So in theater, the producer gets a fairly large share of the profits for putting the show together while the investor gets half of the profit for having risked all the capital. Happens in film, happens in theater, uh, in real estate and in other hedge fund arrangements, you'd probably see something more like an 80-20 split where the promoter gets 20% and the investor who's risked the capital and put up the cash gets 80%. Um, Different business model, different ideas, Probably a lot more risk in our industry than in any of the other things. So literally it's like hundreds of shows you worked on, right? Literally in the many hundreds of shows at this point. So you've worked on hundreds of shows, you've worked with hundreds of producers, and stared at hundreds of budgets. What's the biggest change you've seen in those budgets over the last 30 years? I'd have to say that there are a couple of places that they've changed significantly. Creative fees have actually gone up, and I think fees in general, the upfront fees, which used to be more um, always on the basis of certainly the royalties and the participation in the weekly operating profits of the show, I've seen fees increase uh, for creative people, for authors, for uh, the lyricists, for the composers. Those have gone up. I've seen certainly the advertising budgets increase fairly significantly over the past few years. And then the biggest item is probably the theater expenses, and the load in, and just getting the show up and running for that first uh, paid public performance. And as an accountant, look, you were so instrumental in giving me my start. If it wasn't for you and your and your company, I don't know that I'd be in the office I am today, literally. So, how much advice and counsel do you give to producers? Part of your job, because are you? Do you have to be like I'm a numbers person? I can only tell you the numbers, or do you like look? Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm thinking. Is that part of your job to be a producer therapist? Producer therapist, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's really an interesting part. I think all accountants, first down, should be, and most of them are business advisors. So since we do have a you know sort of a perspective not only on the day-to-day operations but on businesses in general, I think it's important to be able to advise people. And I've always found that my role certainly with a producer to help them and protect them almost from themselves, from their investors, from the royalty participants, and to make sure that they're following the rules, that they're doing what they really need to do so that they don't have exposure. Because the last thing you really want is exposure to any of those people. And I take it as my job first now to provide that level of protection for them by making sure the numbers are right. And then by advising them on, on sort of what I think, how I think the business should be run and how I think it should, what should happen. And certainly you've been a great success, Ken, and, and where you've gone from when we did sit in my office a long, long time ago and you were thinking all kinds of crazy thoughts about not being here and not doing this. And I think you made the right choice at the end of the day. But it was a path and a path of when we talked about it, Having lots of vertical integration or as much vertical integration as you can get as a producer and working on really different projects because you need to learn the business to understand it. It doesn't just come. There's no place to learn how to be a producer. It only comes with experience. It only comes with success and with failure. And I'd say it comes with talking to people like you in your office that day. We had to go to your office because I didn't have one. Right. I had an apartment. So you look at all these budgets. Right? You see hundreds of these budgets. As you look at so many and then see the results of the shows, anything stick out that you, that's a commonality on paper that translates to commercial or financial success? I think the answer to that is no. I, I don't think there's a commonality that anything that really would make a show more successful than any other. The key from what I have seen over the years are the successful producers make the best deals with their royalty participants and with their creative teams. And those are the most important transactions that you can do. The initial contracts, really getting everyone to a place where everyone's sharing. We're in this together. If the show is successful, you as a royalty participant are going to make a lot of money. And if the show isn't successful, no one's going to make any money and people are going to lose money. So it's important to express as you're doing those contracts to really get the deals right from the outset and and shows that today are paying still paying royalties on the basis of gross box office receipts as opposed to net operating profits are able to do that and sustain that because they have those good deals in place, because they did it initially and at the outset. So I think that's really an important part of the success of a show. I think the rest is, again the deals you do. What are my rentals going to be? There are only certain things you have control over and certain things you don't. You don't have a lot of control over your theater expenses or your theater rent. Your advertising budget's going to move as the show moves, depending on the success of the show and, and where you want to put your advertising dollars. So when you when I look at a budget and when I look at what weekly operating costs are going to be, um, I think of what the variable ones are. What do I control or what can I control? So I can control how much I pay an actor. I can control certain costs, but really, there's not a lot. And Then I say, but anywhere from thirty to forty percent of my net income, I'm going to my royalty participant. That's important to control. It's either eighteen to twenty-two percent of your gross, or thirty to forty percent of your net. Mathematical calculation: the better those deals are, the more chance you have at success. And do you see a wide variety of those deals now across the industry? I do. I think, you know, a lot of them are driven by the size of the theater you're in. Many of them are driven by who you're trying to attract in terms of the talent, directors, lyricists, composers, that there is a fairly wide deal or spread of, of arrangements that are being made. Things like amortization in royalty computations, I think, are important, probably undervalued to think about. But there hasn't been a lot of change in that area, honestly, over the past 20 years. So I think that's an area that I keep thinking, how can we innovate on that? How can we evolve that? What can we possibly do so that we're not giving away 30 or 40% of our weekly operating profits to royalty participants before an investor has recruited? And an investor has taken a great risk in doing it, and of course, the argument on the other side is that the creative person is taking as great a risk by spending their time creating this. That goes a little bit to that. The fees are getting higher on the, uh, at the outset. So it's a, uh, it's kind of a catch-22 there. Do you have any creative ideas on, you want to throw out about what we should try? I think we'll have to save that for another, uh, another five years. I don't. I challenge all of my students that come in to actually think about how could you do a royalty arrangement differently? Why is it a share of weekly net operating profits? Should we use a different amorti- should amortization, which is really just the ability to expense part of the production costs in computing what your uh, royalties are in a given cycle? Is there another way to compute this? What, what are the costs of that? So I think that's the challenge. Uh, you know. But when I look at certainly weekly operating costs, 30 to 40 percent of my my weekly costs are going to royalties it's it's larger than any other industry you would not see that in the film industry for sure you mentioned amortization and this is a bit of an advanced topic but i want to talk about it because it's something that i'm you know this is this idea of taking a set amount per week off the or adding on to the operating expenses so that you're paying less to your royalty participants but you have to give up a great deal for that. you got to pay them a double guarantee, and then they get to recoup that amount after you recoup the show. So I'm having a bit of a philosophical issue with this now, because basically a producer who elects amortization is saying, hey, I don't know that I'm ever going to get to recoup it. It's a producer who elects it is betting against themselves, right? Well, that's a perspective, and probably a good one. That's a producer's perspective. I would say that part of that is really also I want to get my investors back their money as soon as I can. And so the ability to reduce the the expenses that are being incurred gets them to recruitment faster. It's a very fine balance, though, because as you've said, there is a cost to actually using the amortization. Those double guarantees, so the minimum amount that you have to pay a royalty participant in any week, Doubles. And if you do get to recruitment, the deferred amount, the amount that you paid using the amortization, using that deduction versus the amount that you would have paid had you not used the deduction is owed to the participants with usually an additional amount payable of 10% to 15% of what's there. So on the one hand, you want to sit there and give your investors back their money sooner. On the other hand, there's a greater cost to doing that at the end of the day. And then you have to really take into account, well, is paying the double minimums really going to be worth it? Or am I going to cost my investors more? So it's not so straightforward. It's not so easy. We can model that. We can run financial models. And again, I think in theater, the one thing that's fairly certain are the expenses, at least within a reasonable range. It's the gross you never know. And it's, that's the part that becomes those assumptions that you run. And so I think, you know, when I think of things very mathematically or very much like an accountant, that's what I would look at. If you, when I look at Variety or Playbill or whatever, wherever you see your Broadway grosses for a week, I can pretty well tell a show that's making money and a show that's not making money. So the expenses are fixed, the income's variable, and you can model your amortization and where you think you come out by just using those assumptions. I'm starting to think, I'm also believing, you know, I believe that a show that is going to get to recruitment, it's, it's going to get there or it's not going to get there. And if it gets there, it usually goes well beyond there. So at the end of the day, you're probably costing your investors some much. I think that's probably true. Uh, you know, there are times, and again, the amortization is a complicated conversation uh, in terms of how it's paid back how that deferred amount that I discussed is paid back to those royalty participants. And it's not paid back from the first dollar of profit. After. It's usually only paid back from the percentage of the operating profits after recoup. So I can point to shows that have used the amortization, have recouped quicker, but have never paid back that full deferral because they never earned enough profits after to have to pay back that deferred amount. Again, this is a much more complicated conversation because what the royalty participants ask for often, if they don't reach, they don't get paid back the full deferral. While the show is running, they'll then ask for fifty percent of the subsidiary rights to go towards that deferred amount. So I'm also at shows where where they are paying fifty percent, still paying fifty percent of the subsidiary rights that are coming in against that deferred amount. So I, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a bit of a slippery slope. I think it, it works in certain cases and it's really not clear cut as to, you know, when and if to make that election. I'm trying to do everything I can to protect the subsidiary rights piece for my investors. It's a big part, I think, of why people should invest in Broadway shows. And the other trend I've seen that I'm curious if you've seen an increase in this in the last decade as opposed to the first couple of your career. More priority loans today than there were 10 years ago. priority loan being monies needed by producers after the show opens in order to keep it going or to put be, put a number on the telecast, Tony telecast. Yeah, I think that I think that's been fairly consistent. I, I may think that I'm seeing fewer of them overall producers making a decision earlier on, either a to really capitalize a sufficient reserve in there to keep things running or B, to make a decision to close the show before I'm getting to a priority loan. I I can think of a, a couple of times where priority loans have been repaid in full and then people have gone on to actually get profits from having put in the priority loans because, again, typical term of a priority loan might include where the producer has to give a share of their profits to the person who's put in the priority loan course only when it gets the profit. So that's not so often, but I have seen that once or twice where you actually not only does the priority loan get repaid, but all of the investors recoup and then there goes on to profits. That's so rare the priority loans typically do get repaid through subsidiary rights, and that's another reason to protect them. but generally, I'm not sure that it's uh once you get to that point of really needing priority loans what the trajectory of the show is, and what it. You do a lot of work in London. Big differences between producing in London and producing on Broadway? There have been, certainly in the past, there have been a number of dif- uh, number of larger differences. We're getting closer and closer. I think they're adapting more to the way we do our deals and to the way we deal with our investors than they used to. In London, it used to be that, and, and in certain cases it still is, where the investors only share in the income from weekly operations, and they don't share from any of the ancillary income sources like merchandising or subsidiary rights. Producers would always hold those items for themselves and have an investor come in and give them a share only of income from weekly operations. The deal is different. They would give those investors 60% of that profit and retain 40% for themselves in addition to retaining the subsidiary rights and merchandising stream. Merchandising is not a big stream of income typically in a U.K. show in any event, though that's changing too as as the worlds are coming a bit closer together. So there are definitely differences in, in those terms. Interestingly, I haven't studied the royalty arrangements as closely in the U.K. for U.K. shows, for shows that start in the U.K., certainly ones that come from the U.S. and go to the U.K., the royalty deals are already set because we've made those deals before. We exercise those rights to do the show in the UK. But I haven't really looked at what the royalty arrangements are there and and how complicated or not complicated they are. I tend to think they're a bit simpler. But maybe there's something there for us to learn from in terms of their royalty arrangements. I think it's it's definitely a different world in terms of producing, and it's definitely a different world in terms of who the cultures are and how marketing is done and how advertising is done. I don't know that firsthand, but I've seen that through the way they've changed campaigns and really try to make it more for U.K. audience than for U.S. audience. What about our touring market here in the States? How's that doing economically? Structures changed? Um, Structures have changed a bit. Certainly there's a number of different uh, union arrangements that have come up with multiple tiers of contracts depending on how a show goes out on tour. The touring market's been robust, I would say, here. Uh, and just to go back to the UK for a moment, I actually think that the touring market in the UK has gotten more robust than it ever was. And the larger shows, which really didn't tour often in the UK, are now able to go out on tours and be very successful. Wicked has toured there successfully. Jersey Boys successfully. Beautiful is going out on tour right now. Hairspray going back away. Their Their touring market has really expanded, I think, in ways where they... Of course, didn't want to do tours in the past. The UK is a much smaller country, and they always felt that if a show was on tour in Manchester, people from Manchester wouldn't come to London to see the show. They're finding that bringing the show to those localities has really increased. And the same is, is true for here, and has always been true for here, but the market here has been, touring has been really, as I said before, robust, not for plays, but certainly for musicals. It used to be a much larger, Touring market for a play. Now it's really rare for a play to go out on tour. Current exception is an curious incident. It's really very. Like I said before, worked with a lot of producers in this business over the years. What are some of the characteristics of the most successful producers you've worked with? Anything in common, or you can also just name your favorites and your least favorite. Well, of course, Ken, you would have to be one of my favorites. Yes. Didn't even have that prod you on that one no question i've got a note here literally start with me (laughs) well that was the one you showed me right i got that one i think that the the thing that i actually do find with the most successful producers is their ability to do math in their heads the ability to actually look at numbers and understand them and sort of know exactly when they're going to be making a deal what the outcome of that deal is and those have been some of the most successful producers that I've worked with, including, you know, starting with someone like Manny Eisenberg, who's kind of an icon in this industry, right on through to David Stone and to Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum and Stuart Thompson. They all have the ability, and Ken Davenport, of course, to do numbers in their head, to actually know, well, if I make this deal, this is what it's going to cost me. And if I go into a theater of only 1,100 people, they can look at the numbers and really interpret them in a, in a very in a way that tells them how to do their business. They don't know how to account for them. They wouldn't know what they were, nor should they want to or care, but they understand the deal. They have a great understanding of the deals that they make. So that actually was my next question, which is, they may know the numbers, but those people out there are listening right now going like, I need to understand the accounting of Broadway shows in order to be a producer. But that's not necessarily true, right? Reading balance sheets, all that stuff. How much of that do people need to know? I think they, I I think they do need to have a bit of understanding of what that is. Certainly to know, it's important to know how much cash do I have available. If I'm a producer and I want to do an advertising campaign, I need to understand what I have available to me. And of course what I have available is, doesn't start with what's in the bank. That's, well I guess it starts there, but it certainly doesn't end there. So I think it's important to understand what's available to a producer to use for advertising, for distributions, for whatever they're embarking on. Again, even to understand, hey, I'm going to need to replace a cast. I'm going to have to do certain things to the set, maybe. So really, understanding what a reserve is, they don't have to be able to to read a balance sheet for that, but they have to have an inherent feeling for what the numbers are and where they they are. I don't think these people, any of those people, I said they can all read a balance sheet. I don't think they spend any time doing that, I think the numbers that they really need to understand, as I said before, really at that outset. What are those deals that I'm making? What are they going to cost me? What do I need to gross? They do understand in general terms, what do I really need to earn to make this work? Now, of course, the best piece of advice I can give to anyone listening is to always make sure that there's sufficient funds to close a show if you get to that point. Because unfortunately, I've seen it happen Too often where producers go too far in, don't have enough available funds from the partnership or the limited liability company they form to close the show, and then it winds up having potentially to cost them money themselves. So I'm always very careful when a show reaches a point, that tipping point, that everyone's very much aware of what's going on. I mentioned briefly your work with lobbying Congress for changes in our tax code. We've been successful at this. There have been a couple of things that have changed over the last couple of years. What's next? What what do you, what are we working on now? We're working on a couple of different things. Interestingly, I was on a call yesterday. As we know, the, the government is in a bit of turmoil right now in terms of tax reform. I'll leave it at tax reform and let everyone else take it from there. But um, tax reform is something that's very high on the current government's agenda. And I was on a call yesterday with the lobbyist for the league and with someone from the government relations committee from the league. And we were talking about getting this, the tax legislation that we had passed, extended, making a slight modification to a few other areas of the code. And, of course, it's a bit dicey right now in terms of where Congress is willing to go with changes. It's very hard to... To have uh, benefits given to something without having, you have to have an offsetting tax increase. So anything that results in a decrease in tax or a benefit always has to be offset with something that generates revenue. In Peter, we wanted a few things that would deal specifically with the way investors can claim losses. One area that we have a real problem with are per diems and meals expenses and things that really are, are sort of anti-theater in terms of the way we do tours and send people out on the road and have to give them a meal. So there are things like that we'd like to change. But I think overall, uh, the tax treatment of being able to expense the production costs in the year that they're incurred, or the year that production opens, is really useful and has been a great thing that the lead champion and Senator Schumer through. And we've got Roy Blunt from Missouri who's on board on the Republican side, and they are putting forth an extension of that package, and hopefully trying to make it a permanent item within the Internal Revenue Code. But just having the word theater there was the first time ever that the word theater appeared in the Internal Revenue Code, and that was a really great success for the League to get that done. And without getting too political, in our current administration, are you bullish about changes that could happen, that could help the theater over the next few years, nervous about it? I don't think, uh, I think, I don't think I'm nervous about it at all. I think certainly if tax rates go down, that can result in there being be more available capital for people to invest. They're, we're not getting any real advantages to, to being in theater other than one of the changes that they're talking about, which would tax the type of income generated from theater at the same rates as where they want to lower the corporate rate to, which could be as low as 15%, would be a great advantage if we ever got there. I personally don't think we'll ever get that low um, with it, but even if it got to 20 or 25%, that could be an advantage. So I think the general changes that they're talking about making to in-tax reform now will benefit theater and will be an advantage to us raising money and being able to put shows on. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin which I'm going to assume those, that's one of the one shows you do not do because Disney probably has a hundred of you in a basement somewhere, crunching numbers. So imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to see you and says, Robert, I want to thank you for, for doing the taxes for all these shows for so many years, and I'm going to grant you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway in general, anything about it, not just the economics, that drives you so crazy, that gets you angry, throwing things, banging your calculator, that you'd ask this genie to wish away? Just one. Just one. Oh, well, if I only have one wish. That's an interesting question, certainly, Ken, and uh, one that I'm politically thinking about how to reply to. I'm not sure that there is any one thing that I would really want to see changed, other than there being more real estate available. I think the biggest problem that we have right now in in producing shows, the limitation of the number of houses that are out there for shows to go into. And as, as some of the larger blockbusters come online, and as some of the larger movie studios come in with product, I think it's harder for independent, it will be harder for independent producers to find places for their, their shows to be. So I think if I had one wish like that, it would be to, to have, you know, a new theater built next to the Imperial on the corner of 8th Avenue and 46th Street. And just have the ability to be able to Put more product into this. That's our, probably the biggest limitation that we have to really make theater grow and, and keep on growing. And to have people have a bigger interest in plays. I really think that the play, which is a great art form that had a moral that told a story that I really do believe can impact people's lives, those are just going by the wayside, unfortunately. And it's because of the economics, because it's so expensive. I've seen plays go from Boston Yonkers being produced for $350,000 to plays now being produced for $3.5 million. That's a huge increase over time. And, and musicals did not follow that same trajectory necessarily. So I think it's gotten so much more expensive. You have to make your money in a shorter period of time. So I think that that would be just another wish if I had two from the G, which would be to, you know, have people have a greater interest uh, in seeing the play. That's why you're a great accountant because you can take one and make it two, just like just like that. I can take it and make it three if you want. One plus one can be anything you want it to be. Well, thank you so much for being here today and uh, for doing my taxes. Thank you for that. Oh, it's a pleasure, and it's it's been a pleasure to watch you really build your business and take this to the next level and do a lot for the world of producing and for theater. Well, thanks again. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you on the next one. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to check out our brand new feature, Office Hours, on the theproducersperspectivepro.com.